Would you pray with me? Your presence, Lord, that's what our hearts long for. And in the gaping holes which exist inside of us, would you fill them with a longing for your presence? The beauty of your presence, God, we know, is that it is not on us to come to you, but you have torn the veil and come to us. You have made your presence not only known and not only real, but you have made it alive in us by the power of Jesus through the filling of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, tonight your presence is what we desire. Holy Spirit, would you come, fill our hearts, transform our minds so that we would think like you. Transform our hearts so that we would feel and love like you. Transform our eyes so that we would see with compassion like you did. And above all, Lord, give us an appreciation and a longing for your presence like we have never felt before. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated for tonight's scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. My name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here at Connection Church, and I would like to first say to our family, thank you for allowing your pastors to have a week off and rest. I am more excited about ministry right now because of the rest that has energized me, and I know Daniel feels the same way, and our families feel the same way. So thank you as a family for letting us go away and have some time to rest 
And tonight, let's finish our series in the book of Colossians. The series has been entitled Simply Jesus. I think Raysa deserves a round of applause before we even get started for making it through all of those names, right? Uh, one of the hardest scriptures ever after I asked her to read it, I started compiling pronunciation uh, YouTube videos, and Daniel texted me and said, I saw Raysa's reading, you should send her some links to how to pronounce those things, and Raysa texted me and said, hey, I need some links to how to pronounce these things, all at the same time. It was the perfect storm, uh, but she did great, and um, tonight we're going to finish with this ending to the letter. Remember, Colossians is a letter that was written to the church at Colossae. And Paul, in typical Paul fashion, ends the letter by sending greetings from those who are with him. He is in prison. He's saying, remember my chains. There are brothers who are greeting you. We pray for you, brothers and sisters. And there's a lot to be found in these scriptures. But we are going to focus tonight on two verses in the middle. Um, we're going to talk about struggle, about fight. And I want to ask you if you've ever been in a struggle. I have three boys, so struggle is a word and a state of being that I am very familiar with right now, whether it's struggling for toys, books, who gets the Toy Story plate, beanbag chairs, which Rescue Bots show we're going to watch, the list goes on and on and on. There is a constant struggle. But these aren't the type of struggles we're talking about, not the struggle Daniel mentioned of UFC or a subway fight. We are talking about spiritual struggle tonight, spiritual fights. Today's New York Times had a great article entitled Rethinking Work. It cited a Gallup poll that found that 90%, 9 out of 10, of workers are quote, not engaged or actively disengaged with their jobs. Nine out of ten of you who have jobs, if the stat is correct, struggle at work. I know this doesn't sound at first like a spiritual struggle. It sounds kind of like the struggling with the toys. But Barry Schwartz, who's the author of the article, spoke prominently in it about how this is not simply due to physical struggles. It's not due to conflicts with your boss or your coworkers, why people hate their jobs or are disengaged from them, apathetic. But he proposed, listen to this, that the main reason people struggle with their work is because they see no value or purpose in their job. He cited studies that show that those who do have purpose who think that their job, the work that they do, influences the world, makes a difference. Those people are much more likely to enjoy their job and much less likely to struggle in it. So my point in bringing that article up today is twofold as we begin. First is to say to you, or I think it should be said, that if you struggle with your job, there is hope. Amen? There is hope in the message of the gospel. You see, the gospel is good news, not just for salvation, but it's also good news for life. And the good news of Jesus extends beyond our eternal destination, and it breaks through into our life, to our everyday life. It can show us the value of working sometimes tedious jobs for the glory of God and bringing about his kingdom. With a perspective like that, it doesn't matter what your work is. You can have purpose. 
You see, you don't have to find purpose in the work you're doing if the purpose of doing the work is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if that's you today, quickly, be encouraged. You can have purpose, motivation, joy, and passion to complete your work with excellence in order to display the beauty of the gospel to the other eight people next to you who are also struggling at your job. So first, if you get nothing else tonight, be encouraged. If you struggle at work, like Barry Schwartz thinks you probably do. Secondly, though, I bring it up um, to get our minds thinking about the idea of struggle. I know that might make you uncomfortable, and that's not a terrible thing to be a little bit uncomfortable in church. Uh, This setting, a sermon, should probably be a little bit more like the subway fight than the UFC fight, right? So discomfort is okay. And we bring this up so that we can see that if any, any of us have ever wrestled with our job or a relationship or our finances or our eternal salvation, your identity, your pride, anger, the list goes on, there is hope. There is hope. It's found right here in Paul's words to the church at Colossae. In his closing words, Paul encourages the church to be filled, to be filled with people, uh, sorry, he encourages this church who is filled with people he has never met face to face, that they are not fighting alone. Isn't it good to have a helper in a fight? I believe it was Toby Keith who said, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was before he stepped into a bar fight in one of his songs. He's saying, you need a hand? I can help you. Because when you're in a fight, it's good to have a helper. And Paul is encouraging the church. You are not fighting alone. And he doesn't only teach them the truth that they're not fighting alone. He reminds them of why. It is because they have brothers and sisters around the world who are praying for them. They are not just linking arms and standing with them in the fight, but they are struggling. They are fighting with the church. Now, this is the distinction we have to make. It's the same distinction we made between the fighting for the toys and the spiritual battle of your work. The distinction is that Paul is not saying that Epaphras, when we get into this in a minute, is struggling with them in Colossae. But he's saying he's struggling with him in spirit. From wherever they are, we are struggling with you, even though you may be a hundred miles away in Ephesus. We are with you. You are not alone. Um, We are going to, uh, the way that they struggle with him is what we call intercessory prayer. I know that might be a word uh, you may be familiar with, but it's not a word we talk about often in church. So to intercede, our lawyer friends know this, is simply to intervene on one's behalf. Someone who intercedes just steps in and intervenes when someone else can't do it. And Paul was passionate about intercession, and he spoke of it often in his letters, but it's not something we speak about often in the church. Uh, Derek Thomas, in a tiny little booklet about prayer called Praying the Savior's Way, says this. Most of us, Christians, pastors, feel exposed by the poverty of our praying. 
Do you feel exposed by the poverty of your praying? He says, we talk about a prayer life, but there is often little life about it. We struggle from one aid to another, bothered by the fact that we find it so hard to grow in our praying. Anybody else relate with that as much as I do? Tonight, we're going to talk about prayer, but in a different way than we usually do. Because I believe so strongly what Paul is trying to teach us with these intercessions is that the reason we have so much poverty in our prayer life as believers and as a church as a whole is because we are so consumed with praying for ourselves that we lose the heart of prayer. We forsake this entire chunk of the glory of prayer, which is interceding on behalf of others. It is the gospel. And we try to become satisfied with this tiny little morsel of praying for our own concerns. So I want want you to do me a favor. Take the worship folder you were handed when you walked in. If you didn't get one, Maybe just grab one of the prayer cards from Trinity Lutheran at the end of the aisle. We'll reimburse them for the, money, uh, for the paper costs. Gra- grab it. Grab a pen, please. Everybody, this is interactive church today. Um, grab a pen. Uh, there's a pencil in front of you, maybe. If not, oh, you can type it into your phone. It's a good thing. On the back of your worship folder, though, is a spot that says sermon notes. I want everybody to write this down. Intercede for one minute. Okay? Now, this is a challenge that will be brought up at the end of the sermon, but I want us to all write it down intercede for one minute. I put it on the screen in case somebody didn't know how to spell intercede like me and had to Google it to make sure they did it right. Um, That's it right there. Intercede for one minute. Okay. Here we go. The first thing we're going to see tonight is that intercessory prayer saves. That sounds good, right? I want to be saved. Intercessory prayer saves. The Christian life is a selfless one. Our guide in it was the most selfless human to ever walk the earth. Jesus, in his perfection and innocence, faced the trial, judgment, punishment, and excruciating execution of a guilty man. As Tim Keller says, it doesn't stop there, in the ultimate act of love, he stayed. He stayed on the cross in order to complete this act of selflessness. If anyone at any time in history had earned the right to be selfish, it was Jesus in this moment. But he wasn't. And when he had the opportunity to reveal his character there on the cross, bloodied and beaten under the persecution of a ruthless power, he revealed what was at the center, at the core of his heart. And that was love and compassion when he looked at the ones who had driven the nails and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He opened up and showed us what is at the core of his being, and that was love and compassion, even for those who were persecuting him and killing him. After the resurrection of Christ, 
He sits. And what does he do in heaven? The stained glass window is beautiful. I love observing it during worship. If you ever wonder where you should look when you're worshiping, if you know the words of the song, try this stained glass window. God the Father at the head, Jesus on the right, sitting at the right hand of God, and the Holy Spirit on the left. And sometimes when we're worshiping and we're singing about Christ, I see this beautiful portrait of him at the right hand of God, enthroned in heaven. And if you see that, see him doing this, interceding on your behalf. He is standing, having intervened on your behalf. And he didn't do it once, but he does it constantly. He lives to intervene on your behalf. So read with me Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. This doesn't sound like a big deal now because we have Facebook and text messaging and phone calls, but that's cool. You don't get to send greetings often when paper is very expensive. So he sends greetings to them. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Those are neighboring towns. So Epaphras, short for Epaphroditus, he had a nickname, because if your name was Epaphroditus, you would want a nickname too. He was in Ephesus several years before this letter was written. Picture this. He's in Ephesus, a, a town that's 100 miles west, sometime between 57 and, or 52 and 57 A.D., Now, while he was visiting, he encountered a zealous Jew who was preaching a message of hope, forgiveness, and freedom to two crowds, the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Greeks. And as Epaphras listened, the Holy Spirit spoke very clearly to him that what this man was saying was true, and that this truth was valuable enough to surrender his entire life for its sake. And that's just what Epaphras did. You can imagine that before Paul stood up to preach, he probably interceded on behalf of those who were about to listen. Just like most pastors do, like I was doing before this sermon. We pray, God, don't let my voice be heard. Don't let these words do anything that I have crafted. But Lord, speak to us tonight as we sit under your word. You can imagine Paul doing that before he stands up. And in that moment, he didn't know who he would be speaking to. But he knew that there would be some Jews who were so attached to their tradition that it would be difficult for them to break the bonds of legalism and experience the free gift that Jesus was offering. I imagine he also prayed for the Gentiles, or the Greeks in the audience, who would be so offended by the idea that there was one truth that we were all accountable to. Yet he still prayed. He prayed that the Spirit would overcome these presuppositions, and he appealed to the Father on behalf of his love for his children. He prayed something like this, Lord, your kingdom come in Ephesus today, in the lives of Jew and Greek today, as it is in heaven. And as he prayed, the Spirit moved because that's what happens when God's people pray. He listens and he moves. Paul has been changed, had been changed by the message he was preaching that day. But when he was changed, 
he noticed something different about the, about the one who had done the work of transformation. He didn't do it for himself. Jesus did not transform people for himself. Jesus did it for others. As Paul knelt in prayer, as is so often recorded in his letters, that's what he prayed. And that day, Epaphras was in Ephesus, listening. And he gave his life to Christ that day. The cool part for the people at Colossae was, Epaphras lived there. And at some point, we don't really know when, Epaphras went back to Colossae, and he started a church. The church that Paul would write this letter to about five years later. So this man whom Paul is saying, hey, Epaphras, he sends greetings to you. He had been saved at the intercession uh, because Paul had interceded on his behalf in, in Ephesus one day. And he left with this message of hope. And he took it back home to the people in Colossae. And he started a church. And at some point, we don't know when, but he went back and started serving with Paul. Probably planting churches all over the region. And this is the man who is wrestling daily with that church in prayer. I hope this never happens, but I can imagine Daniel or I leaving this church that God has called us here to start. And if that ever happened, you can't know how much I would wrestle for you in prayer. I feel like I know exactly what Epaphras is doing, exactly what Paul is saying. Listen, guys, this man, he is on his knees wrestling in prayer. He is struggling daily because he wants you to fulfill the will of God in your life, to complete your ministry. And because he knows that intercessory prayer, that same type of prayer that was responsible for his salvation, is responsible for the salvation of others. And church, when we pray for ourselves, people are not being saved. But when we get on our knees and we wrestle for the souls in the spiritual realm of those people who are around us and the church of God universal, people are saved. Paul knew that. Epaphras knew that. We need to know that. Intercessory prayer saves. But it doesn't only save. It does two more things. Number one, or number two, it is selfless. Intercessory prayer is an act of selflessness. Intercessory prayer is selfless. In the opening verses of Colossians and many other in his letters, Paul writes that he is constantly praying for other churches. Paul understood the example of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they are always interceding on behalf of others. They are praying that intercessory prayer. Why? Because it is a selfless act that connects us to the heart of God. When we are involved in intercessory prayer, picture yourself in the position of Christ. Hanging on the cross, fighting in prayer with the opportunity. A crossroads is in front of you. 
should I get down off of this cross? Should I get up off of my knees or, or uh, get out of my car or up off my chair, wherever you do your praying? Should I get up and leave having only prayed for myself? Or in the ultimate act of love for my brothers and sisters, should I stay right here in prayer for others? I was challenged preparing this sermon, and I hope you will be challenged tonight. The intercessory prayer is an act in selflessness. It is a way for us to relate with Christ on the cross, who is looking out at those who are persecuting him and says, I forgot what he said, but I said it earlier, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is selfless. Intercessory prayer is an act in selflessness. Not just for individual souls, though, but in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, listen to what the prophet Jeremiah hears from the Lord. God is speaking powerfully through Jeremiah to the people who are exiled. We can read this as, that is us. We are the church. Our citizenship lies in heaven. We are exiled to earth. And in chapter 29, verse 7, we get an idea of what we are to do on this earth. The Lord says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in it, the city's welfare, you will find your welfare. This is a biblical principle we should live our lives upon. The fact that the gospel, uh, sorry, sorry, the fact that our flesh tells us, if you want you yourself to be well, you seek your own welfare. If you want to make sure your family is taken care of, you get your things done. If you want to make sure you feel better, then you give yourself things. Whether it's healthy things or material things or time, rest. All we, the flesh says, if you want yourself to be better, help yourself. The gospel is the opposite of that. It's found right here in Jeremiah 29.7. If you want the city to be well, peace, prosperity, blessing, if you want those things in your city, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Intercede for your city. Intercede for the people in it. Intercede for its leaders. Intercede for the poor. Intercede for your brothers and sisters. Intercede for those who are not believers in your city. And God says, when the church does that, the church will find its welfare. In other words, our welfare is a byproduct, not of us seeking ourselves, but of us seeking the welfare of others. Amen? Fear of not being answered. Busyness, forgetfulness, unwillingness, unbelief. These are the top excuses I have for not interceding on others' behalf. Fear of not being answered, busyness, forgetfulness, unwillingness, unbelief. Those are the roadblocks for interceding for me. But earlier this month, a few of us went to Nashville for a a conference. And one of the things that God spoke clearly to all three that attended was that we, as a leadership, need to be praying, interceding on behalf of the church more diligently. Not only on behalf of the church, but also on behalf of our neighbors and on behalf of our city. 
And one of the practical responses I had to this conviction was to intentionally try to pray for people more often. That's usually good. When God tells you to do something, a really good sign um, of uh, being a follower of him is to obey. As my wife has taught me and can now teach you, you are not successful when you get things done for God. Then we tend to be motivated by getting things done. We are successful when we are obedient to God. So when God tells you to pray more, you pray more. So that's what I tried to start doing. Every time I'd be talking to someone, I would try to find out. I would be asking myself, what is, what is God asking me to pray for them about? And I put it into practice by stepping out of my comfort zone. I know I'm a, a pastor or a preacher and stuff like that, but it's still not comfortable for me to even say, can I pray for you about that? I stepped out of my comfort zone and did that. I'll pray for you, or can I pray for you? And nothing extraordinary happened, necessarily. People just usually say, yes. And last week, I stepped even farther outside of my comfort zone. I have a friend who told me that he was experiencing incredible anxiety and worry over a big job. He's a contract worker. A big big job that he had secured, but had not heard back from. (laughs) And he was banking, literally banking, on this income. And um, he texted some of that to me. And this is a guy that I'm a little bit intimidated to say, I'll pray for you about. I know that he does not believe in God. We've talked at length about his lack of religious experience, and he's fine with that. And I'm fine with that. I'm his friend, and God's called me to love him. But in that moment, I heard God call me to pray for him, to tell him I was praying for him. But see, as I stood on that street corner right here on 45th Street and 30th Avenue the other day, reading that text. My first thought was not, yes, God, let me obey you. My first thought was, what if God doesn't answer it? What if I text message him and say, I will pray for you. I will pray that that will be reconciled today. That's what I believe God was telling me to text him. But I was scared. What if I say that and then nothing happens? Won't I be just giving him more reason not to believe in God? But do you hear what all of this doubt is? is? It's all me focused. Then I might be embarrassed. Then he might further think I'm foolish for believing in God, saying that God answers prayers for me. But in that moment, I I made the decision. I'm going to obey what God is telling me to do. So I texted him back. I'll pray for you pray that you hear back today. And he texted back, I'll take it. (laughs) The next morning, we were texting again back and forth. And although this doesn't happen often, I feel like, especially this week, in talking about intercessory prayer, God showed me this so that we can all see together that God is in control of what he answers and what he doesn't, and we need not worry We just need to obey. And I was texting back and forth with him, and he said, Hey, thanks for praying. It worked. He heard back from the guy that night, the same day that I texted. And so it was like that Indiana Jones, uh, the part of the Indiana Jones movie where there's an optical illusion, and he thinks he's about to step off into a cliff. Right? That was me. What if I step off this ledge and there's nothing there? But the illusion that he couldn't see, Harrison Ford, was that the natural bridge was blending into 
his surroundings, and he stepped out and he walked across. That was me this week. And that is what God is calling you to do as you intercede for others. Step out. You don't have faith in intercession because you're the one in control of the answers. You have faith because God is in control of the answers. Intercede on behalf of others because it's selfless. And finally, intercessory prayer unites the church. The truth is that um, uh, this truth is one that is rarely argued against, right? That we need unity in the church. But it's one that's even more rarely practice unity in the church. It's been around since the beginning. It is still around now. We always constantly have disunity. The apostles argued. The church fathers argued. We argue. With this in mind, let's focus on this potentially huge argument in Colossae. Chapter 4, verse 9. This man is coming. Listen to this. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother. He is one of you. They will tell you everything that happened here. This is the end of his letter. Paul's saying all these things. This, check this out, would have shocked the church. Onesimus was a slave who ran away from Philemon, who lived in Colossae, a very wealthy man, and we can assume a part of the church. Onesimus had run away and by God's providence ran into Paul in Rome. Because, just like today, if you're a slave and you're going to run away, where's the best place to go? A big city where you can fall into ambiguity and be forgotten forever. So that's exactly what Onesimus does. Except when he's there, he, just like Epaphras, comes into contact with this guy preaching this message of hope. And Onesimus' life is transformed. And he becomes a servant in the gospel with Paul, helping him while Paul is in prison to maintain the ministry. And I can imagine one day Onesimus probably said, hey, uh, you're going to write that letter to Colossae? Yeah, that's where I'm from. And that's where I ran away from, and uh, my slave owner is probably very angry with me that I ran away. And Paul says, don't worry, I got this. I'm going to send you with the letter back to your slave owner, but I'm going to tell him something very important. And this is what intercessory prayer does, church. It unites us. Because Paul says in the letter, I'm sending back not a slave to you, Philemon. In fact, Philemon, if you look a few pages back in the, or further in the Bible later, Philemon gets a whole entire letter for himself. Paul knows this would be important. So he writes a letter to Philemon about Onesimus. And he says, accept him. But in this letter, he puts one little line. I'm sending the letter with Onesimus and accept him, not as a slave, not as a servant, as a fellow brother. Paul says, Philemon, church, I know you have big reason to be at odds with this man who ran away, has cost you money, and who has disowned you. But the gospel has reconciled that. We have been interceding, fighting for you in prayer, that you would receive him. So we're just going to speak this like it's going to happen. Here's the letter. He's going to bring it. He's going to tell of all we've been doing, and he is now your brother. Intercessory prayer unites. 
Paul had confidence in this because Jesus had come to him. Paul knew the intercession worked because Jesus had interceded on Paul's behalf. Saul was a man persecuting the church, and as he was walking one day to kill more Christians, Jesus met him. He came and intervened and said, Why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul's life was, Saul's life was changed. And Christ changed his name to Paul. And Paul, who used to be an enemy of the faith, became a servant of Christ. Because Christ had interceded on his behalf. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 18th century, said this, Jesus ever lives to make intercession. His intercession before God in heaven is a continual intercession. It is a constant presentation of his will before the Father. What is his will? For the salvation and happiness of those that are in the virtue of his blood. Because Christ intercedes for us when we are enemies of God, we can intercede for our unbelieving friends, for our brothers and sisters in the family of Connection Church, and for the church universal around the world, for our cities, for our leaders. Paul described this practice as a fight. He said it is a fight that one must struggle through and wrestle with and one that he strove in and endured. And tonight I want to encourage you and I to see the value in intercessory prayer. You wrote or typed, intercede for one minute. I want to challenge you, church, and me, tonight, to intercede for one minute. Pray. Intervene on behalf of of others for one minute. And at the end, ask God to give you an appetite for what you just did for one minute. So that it would continue, not throughout your week or throughout your month or your year, but your life. There is only one answer to the question, how do I not give up the fight? Simply, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that you have been selfless. Thank you for interceding on our behalf. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for uniting us together. Lord, give us eyes to see the spiritual realm around us. And I pray that you would give us energy and excitement as we go to battle in that realm. Let us not, as Pastor Daniel said earlier, let us not be distracted with the physical fights on this earth, with disagreements and petty arguments. But God, give us focus on the spiritual war at hand so that when you tell us to pray for one of our friends, we would simply obey. 
thank you for the practice of intercession. Would you give us an appetite? Would we wake up and the first thought in our mind be a prayer for another? When we sit to a meal and begin in prayer, would our first thought be to pray on behalf of a friend who is going through a struggle? Even before we lift up a struggle of our own, give us hearts for intercession. Challenge us to intercede tonight for one minute. And may that be just an appetizer for what you have in store for the main course. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.